Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the show. Director Stanley Nelson made a movie about the crack epidemic of the 1980s. The movie is called Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. It's on Netflix, and you must see this movie. So much of how we treat social problems depends on how we see the people who are impacted by those problems. Nelson tells the story of the crack epidemic in a way that sheds as much light on how disposably we treated victims of the epidemic as it tells us about the epidemic itself. Stanley Nelson does not pull punches. The epidemic was deadly, and the people who perpetrated it did great harm. And many of the communities are still really living with that harm. But the story of how crack came to dominate and decimate so many of those communities is far more complex than we sometimes appreciate. Here I am with director Stanley Nelson. His film, Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy is available on Netflix. Check it out. Please welcome to the Tanya Acker Show, multiple Emmy Award winner, director of the new film, Crack, on Netflix, Stanley Nelson. I just want to say to everybody, you must see this film. Welcome, Stanley, and tell me why you felt it was important to tell this story right now. Well, I, I think we, you know, we started the story a couple of years ago, um, and I just we felt that the story w- was evergreen. That whole crack era and the crack epidemic hadn't kind of been looked at through the lens of time. That, that you know, there was a lot of hyperbole at the time, a lot of crazy reporting, as we show in the film. But I, I think that we felt that nobody had really taken a, a clear-eyed look back um, at what happened. You know, I made a note uh, as I was watching the film because you really do a wonderful job putting the story of the epidemic in the historical context. Your film talks about this incredible confluence of money and corruption and just the love of greed all at around the same time that we're seeing this epidemic uh, blow up. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so many forces came together, you know, in the early 80s, you know, um, at the time, cocaine was thought thought to be hips, uh, you know, so many times, you know, at clubs, you know, the, the one of the, the bartenders would be selling coke and, you know, they you go to the bathroom and they, people would be sniffing coke, at, uh, you know, off the counters. And, you know, it was kind of thought as a fun drug, party drug. And then all of a sudden, we heard about, you know, freebasing, you know, for many, it was Richard Pryor kind of setting himself on fire. What was that all about? And, and you could smoke Coke if you cooked it up and, and went through a, an elaborate process. But then we talked to many people. One of them is, is Freeway Rick Ross, you know, a huge cocaine dealer, crack dealer out of L.A. And he said, you know, that, that we realized that people didn't really want to go through the process of cooking it up. You know, it was dangerous. You know, Richard Pryor set himself on fire. And that if we cooked it up ourselves and, you know, sold little vials, we could sell a lot more and people would buy it. And we started calling it crack. I thought one of the other really spectacular things about this film was how you humanized so many of the 
participants and victims of this epidemic. Um, I'm a child of the early 80s. And so, you know, I remember the news reports, crack mothers, crack babies, crackheads. Uh, these were not people for whom we had any sympathy. And these weren't people who we understood as being sick. Explain to me what you think this film does in terms of telling the story of this epidemic that has sometimes been lost over the years? Well, I think first it humanizes the people that, that used crack and sold crack. You know, um, we, we talked to many crack dealers and, and one guy, you know, uh, Samson Stiles, who ended up actually being a consulting producer on the film, you know, talks about how he had a, a, a crummy job at McDonald's and, you know, he wasn't making enough to, to take home and his girlfriend was about to have a baby. And, you know, some guy that he knows, you know, gives him some crack vials to sell. And all of a sudden, you know, he starts making real money. As he said, one of my favorite quotes, he said, it was like a gold rush in the hood. So at first, you know, um, they they were kind of selling crack with impunity, you know, out on the streets and, and they, the cops weren't, weren't stopping it and, and people were buying it. And, and uh, it seemed like, you know, people talk about it being fun. You know, we, we were making money and we had hundreds of pairs of shoes and girls and jewelry and, you know, the cops really weren't involved. And, and one of the great things that, that I think the film does is show that. We see people lined up, you know, for blocks on cars to buy crack, people lining up, people smoking crack in the street. But then, you know, it kind of really turned sour and, and turned sinister. He was very compelling among the many compelling characters in your film, uh, Samson Stiles, a former uh, crack dealer, talked about how the culture of the crack dealer really required them to show no emotion. They couldn't laugh, couldn't tell jokes. They couldn't really be expressive in any way because that was seen as weakness. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about the psychology of what kind of led people uh, to do that. Tell us, were you surprised by some of what you learned from some of the people who participated in this? Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it was surprising and so much of it was illuminating. You know, Samson Styles talking about not being able to laugh. He talks about, you know, going to parties and, and you couldn't dance, you know, because if, if another killer was looking at you, he would take that as a sign of weakness. And I think that in, in some ways, in some places, you know, that attitude has, has pervaded the African-American community, you know, where you've got to be hard. And that's the way, way to be. That was so amazing to me. And, and uh, I think Samson really talks about it in a, in a way that brings it home. I mean, a couple of other things that came out. I think he was also the participant who said that he couldn't count the number of people who he saw killed, like saw killed with his own eyes. I mean, I really, um, that took me aback. It took me aback. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that they're really clear. We talked to a number of dealers, you know, and a number of users, and, and they're really clear about the fact that, you know, one guy says it was fun, you know, that, that, that it was fun at first. But then the crack trade was totally a free-for-all. And so th then uh, different blocks and communities started fighting each other, battling each other for turf, and uh, the death and the killing started to mount. 
you play a clip of a McDonald's commercial of the time and there's, you know, the young, good uh, black kid, Calvin, and everybody, you know, there's the back talk about him. He's walking down the street and, you know, you hear people saying, oh, it's so great. People are giving them a chance. And I'm thinking like, yeah, a chance to go work at McDonald's that was posited as an alternative culturally, but which was not a realistic alternative for people who needed to uh, support families. Minimum wage at the time being $3.35 an hour. I thought you also painted a very realistic portrait of was the choices or lack thereof that many African-Americans faced at the time, especially when you were growing up in those communities. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was very, you know, very important to to set up the film, that the first clip besides the tease is Ronald Reagan accepting the nomination for president to make America great again, which is an incredible clip, you know, uh, echo, of course, Trump. And, you know, as uh, Ronald Reagan comes in, by 82, two years after he, he, he's elected, you know, unemployment is at an all-time high, at least up to that point. The black, black communities are devastated. Welfare is cut for so many people. School aid, you know, is cut for, for so many communities. And crack comes in, and again, it's, it seems like a gold rush, you know, um, that that's a place that young people, young mostly men in, in African-American, Latinx communities can make money and make money and survive. Again, there's very little policing at first. There's there's no danger. It's not run by the mafia, you know, like heroin trade. You can buy some coke and cook it up and and put it in vials and sell crack and and run a, a little uh, a little business. Um, but again, it turns really dangerous, and uh, so many people end up either addicted or, or dead or in jail. There were so many parts of the movie and telling the story of that time in history that uh, provide a really interesting counterpoint to right now. So, for instance, uh, there are folks in the movie who talk about how the police were essentially absent. The theory kind of being, we'll just let folks in those communities shoot it out amongst themselves. And you contrast the complaint then about sort of a lack of police involvement. And now what we see are complaints about too much police involvement in some communities. Um, It almost suggests that there's like an either or, but people shouldn't have to choose between not having cops come at all or having guns in their schools, uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think think that one of the the most enlightening uh, segments in the film, you know, is is it got so bad in African-American communities. People talk about, you know, not being able to go out at night, not being able to walk the street. One woman says, you know, when I, from the time, it's a clip from the time, she says, when I come home at night, I just lock my door. You know, I, I'm not going out, out there. And it got so bad that even in African-American communities, you know, that we see people marching for more police. And it's almost impossible to imagine today. And as the police and, and, and politicians and the press kind of, now latch on to the crack epidemic and, and, and just crazy headlines about crack babies and crack mothers. Now the police are, are taking notice. Uh, presidents are taking notice. And um, we see what we're living with today, you know, crazy drug laws and over, over-policing and overfunded policing to where, you know, they're, they're like uh, military units. Well, speaking of the reaction to that epidemic, 
I asked you at the outset why you told this story now, and, and you, you said it's evergreen. It is evergreen. You started the film a couple of years ago. The film, once again, everybody, crack on Netflix. But what I find so particularly topical about it is that it allows people to be reminded of the different ways that we treated that epidemic and victims of that epidemic than we do uh, victims of opioids. It's such a, a stark reminder. How much of that was on your mind as you were telling this story? Oh, it was always on our mind, you know, that the opioid epidemic is thought of as a public health crisis and crack was thought of as a criminality crisis. But one of the things we wanted to do is, is to make the film in such a way that the viewer makes the connection. You know, we didn't always want to be saying, you know, it's different now. <laughs> You know, and it's different now. You can't help but think about that. And this woman in the film who's been 21 years uh, clean now, she says, you know, she was uh, arrested five times for, for possession of crack and spent jail time for each one. Never once was she offered treatment. She never was arrested for, for a crime. She never was arrested for selling crack or, or breaking and entering or anything. She was arrested for possession of a small amount of coca of crack cocaine and uh, spent jail time every time. And, and again, never was offered treatment. Your film also talks about this, how potent and addictive it is just physically and, you know, physiologically what it does to the body and how it influences and how quickly it impacts and influences users. It really gave me certainly a better appreciation for how sick crack addicts were, I mean, actually sick. And when you consider the story of someone and her story is the same of many, uh, never treated as anything other than, than criminals. Well, before I get to the harm that lasts today, crack really built these complete subcultures in African-American communities. I mean, it, you talk about it's almost like they were self-sustaining, self-supporting, self-contained economies. Talk a little bit about that. One of the things that, that happened is because crack wasn't supported or backed by, you know, some huge organized crime, all a young guy had to do was buy some cocaine, cook it up, put it into vials, and get with his boys and sell it, you know, and, you know, then go back and buy more and then buy more. And then a certain certain people like Samson talks about um, how, you know, he first he locked down his building in the project and nobody could sell but his boys in the building. Then, you know, he locked down the whole projects, you know, and then nobody could sell crack in the projects except his gang. Then, you know, he locked down a couple more blocks and, and that's how, how it was done over and over again. And it was all around the country, you know, everywhere in the country's big cities and, and small. And, and so, you know, in some ways, you know, it, it became a real economy. People traveled up and down the East Coast and, and were, were kind of, you know, real professional crack dealers. And in a way, I mean, in a weird way, it allowed uh, so many, you know, young African-Americans to get into business. You know, Ricky Ross, Freeway Ricky Ross, you know, in, in L.A., again, your biggest uh, crack dealers in the world. He runs off the litany of businesses that he owns. I mean, motels. He, he owns a motel, uh, movie theater, beauty <laughs> shop, barbershop, <laughs> tire shop. And that's the, the way they were operating, you know. But again, everybody, everybody that we talked to pretty much ended up either shot, 
in jail or messed up for life. And uh, so many communities that were just devastated. I mean, they were even physically devastated. They look like war zones. How much of the remnants of that do you still see? And do you think that Black communities in America are still having to deal with? I mean, I think it's so hard for Black communities to recover. And, you know, when they recover, a lot of the times they recover as white communities, you know, or mixed communities. So I live in Harlem, and what we see are the, in some ways, the places in Harlem that have come back now, you know, have come back as largely white neighborhoods. And and also the the neighborhoods that were, were the worst, where you had to tear down the buildings, right? Now they're able to build new apartment buildings that, that are largely able to, to be afforded by, by white folks, you know? Um, so I think there was, there was a lasting uh, destruction of communities and, and so much um, hasn't been rebuilt or, or been kind of now re, rebuilt as gentrified communities. Um, but, you know, also what, one of the huge things is that people got put in jail, you know, and got records and are still in jail you know, because of mandatory minimum sentences, you know, that in the middle of the crack epidemic, the federal government rushed through laws that that equated, you know, five grams of crack with 500 grams of cocaine. So, you know, if you had five grams of crack, which is like for personal use, was the same sentence as 500 grams of coke, which is clearly, you know, selling coke if you're dealing with 500 grams. And as you point out, there are so many secondary consequences of those prosecutions. More people became felons. Uh, more people were disenfranchised. Uh, lots of states have taken action to re-enfranchise those with felony convictions. Tell me this, Stanley. What was the hardest thing for you in making this movie? What was the hardest part? I think the hardest part of the story was kind of the government's involvement, the Iran-Contra involvement, because, you know, we had to be very careful with what we suspect and what we can prove. We had to really kind of tiptoe along the edge. Hopefully, you know, when you see the film, you don't know that we're tiptoeing. But, you know, we have to, to tiptoe because there was so so much that was not, proven because the government didn't want to prove it. As one person says uh, in the film, you know, um, you mean to tell me that the CIA is going to investigate itself. That's no no way to have an investigation. So, you know, we, we had to really talk about what we could prove. Right? And so the United States was involved in cocaine smuggling. At the very worst, loading planes and flying them. At the very least, turning its back and just, you know, saying, yeah, I, don't, I, I really don't see anything. I'm not looking. That's what we could say. You're really touching on the importance of facts and being true to them and trying to present them honestly, especially in a moment like now uh, where conspiracy theories have really become for some a matter of course. Do you think that it's hard for people to accept some of the truths that you present in the movie? No, nah. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, especially black folks. You know? I, mean, like, I mean, look, you know, we know a lot of black folks know, know the deal. You know, I mean, I, I think that in some ways, you know, it takes looking at Ronald Reagan in a, in, a, in a different way for some people. You know, it takes looking at Clinton in a different way. But, you know, they were all part of it. 
again, in the middle of a crack epidemic, you know, the best Ronald Reagan could come up with was just say no. It's ridiculous, you know. But I, I think that that for, for, for so many people, and not only African-Americans, you know, so many people now have kind of, you know, the window has been cracked. And, you know, we, we kind of see a little bit more about what this government is and what this government has done, you know. Um, we believe a lot more than we would have believed, you know, 10 years ago. You also explore, I think, how particularly savage were the impacts of the crack epidemic on women, women who uh, sold themselves, women who allowed themselves to be abused uh, so they could get another fix. As you were interviewing uh, some of these participants, was it hard for them to go back? Were there moments where you had to, like, cut yeah, oh, yeah. Break. oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I, I think, and it, within the film, you know, you, you see women actually crying and, uh, and about what what they did and and their their lives being devastated. You know, um, that their lives are still devastated, and we don't really have to say anything. You just see it. You know, see it on their faces, on, on and, and on their bodies. You know, and, and they they talk about still living with, with some of the effects of what they did and what, what happened to them. But, you know, I, I think also that we're very clear that uh, there was also a mistreatment and, and, and not, not understanding and, and looking at women as not being human, that you were a crack hole and that's all you were and not that you were a human that had a problem. Something somebody in the film said was that when these women would come willing to, you know, have sex or sell themselves uh, for crack, he said if they were new in the addiction, they still kind of looked okay. But later on, they became consumed by the product he was selling. They were just treated, uh, I think, even more disposably. What do you want people to learn from this movie? We want people to look back at, at this, uh, you know, again, through the lens of time and, and think about it and think about the drug policy. Think about today, you know, think about how, how it led to mass incarceration. Think about how the press was overblown and, and you know, dishonest about it. Um, think about how, you know, it led to over-policing and, you know, police getting uh automatic weapons and tanks and, uh, you know, body armor and, 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 you know, what it does, you know, and, and what it does if, if we don't think about all people as being human and all people as being, as being equal, all people as being worthwhile, you know, we can't throw away part of the population without really causing consequences, you know, on down the line for all of us. Stanley Nelson, you are a treasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making this a really important movie. Stanley Nelson, the director of Crack, you can see it on Netflix. You must watch it. Thank you so much for being here, Stanley. Good luck to you. Stay safe. All right. Thank you so much. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fragoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 